I have to give a quick disclaimer at the top of this episode that if you are a horse person, prepare to cringe. I was informed thanks to a patron, AR, who gets the podcast episodes early and ad-free as a perk for letting me know that I pronounced dressage, dressage, dressage is how I pronounced it, but apparently it rhymes with corsage, dressage. I don't even know if I'm saying it right now. It, like There's no way I can say this to make it sound right in my head. So prepare to cringe. I say it a couple of times and I say it wrong every single one of those. So with that out of the way, here's the episode. When the police conducted a welfare check on Raymond Green, his wife, Danny, welcomed them onto the property and allowed them to search. They could search anywhere they wanted, except for that padlocked metal box in the yard. When the police came back with a warrant, they learned what was hidden. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. If you've been here before, welcome if this is your first episode. For those who know my new schedule this year, I do want to say that we already have a schedule change. I think we stuck to the new schedule for February and it's been off in January and now in March. I'm going out of town at the end of the month for spring break for a fun time with my kids. And so instead of taking the second week and the fifth week off like I would have done, I'm actually just going to take the fourth and the fifth off to adjust for the vacation plans. So you're going to get the same amount of episodes, but there will just be a longer break at the end of the month rather than two one-week breaks. But if you find you miss crime lines too much, I do offer extra content on Patreon and Apple subscriptions. And all of the tiers, no matter what you sign up for on Patreon or if you sign up on Apple subscriptions, you're getting these regular episodes ad-free as well. So there's a lot of content and all of it ad-free. So, okay, let's get into this week's case. The main sources for this episode are court papers, an episode of 48 Hours, and the reporting of Mike Pearlberg for Eagle Country Online. All of my sources are linked in the show notes for every episode. We are going to start with Raymond Green. So picture a cowboy and you have the right idea. He worked with horses growing up and returned to that cowboy life in Texas when he got back from two tours in Vietnam. He married his best friend from childhood, Maggie, and they built a 200-acre, 70-horse ranch in San Antonio, where they became well-respected breeders, trainers, and farriers. So a farrier is someone who basically shoes horses. The two had one child together, a daughter named Tracy. One client of the Greens was a young woman named Danny. She had Olympic dreams to compete in dressage. And taken from Wikipedia, because I am not a horse person and I have no idea what this means, dressage is, quote, the highest expression of horse training, where horse and rider are expected to perform from memory a series of predetermined movements. So the first step in preparing for dressage is to obviously do some basic training with your horse so that you can then build on that. 
So Danny took her horses to the greens for this training, as well as to have her horse's shoes and hooves maintained. Things were going really well for Ray and Maggie when tragedy struck in May 2002. Some of my Oklahoma listeners may actually know what I'm talking about. Maggie was driving home with her horses from a barrel race. She was headed south on I-40 through Oklahoma on May 26th when a barge captain fainted, likely due to an episode of tachycardia. The barge hit the I-40 bridge over the Arkansas River and the supports failed, causing a portion of the bridge to collapse. Though nearby fishermen were able to save a number of travelers that day, Maggie Green was not one of them. She and 13 others died in the Arkansas River when their vehicles fell off the bridge. Ray Green and his daughter Tracy were blindsided and devastated by what seemed like such a random event that took Maggie's life. Soon, there was a lawsuit with the boat company, which led to a settlement with the families of the deceased and the injured survivors. While the exact details of the settlement have not been released to the public, between what Ray inherited from Maggie's estate and his settlement, we know he ended up with over a million dollars. Within about two months of Maggie's death, that old client of theirs, Danny, began hanging around the ranch quite a bit more. She hit it off with Ray, who was still grieving, not just for his wife Maggie, but also for that companionship of having a partner in life. Those who knew Ray felt that this was a rather abrupt entrance into his life and that Danny, who was 22 years younger than Ray, had actively pursued him and it wasn't the other way around. At the time of Maggie's death, Danny was married to someone else, but she soon separated from her husband. They divorced in August 2003, and then in May 2004, 54-year-old Ray and 32-year-old Danny went on a vacation together. When they came back, they announced that they had gotten married. Ray's daughter Tracy, an adult by this point, told 48 Hours that she was happy that her father was happy after everything he had been through. But you and I know that I'm happy you're happy is often code for not actually being happy for the situation, and Tracy wasn't. Danny had moved right in as Ray's wife without much consideration for anyone else. She would wear Maggie's jewelry and her expensive hats and boots without thinking about how that would make Tracy or Maggie's other loved ones feel. Tracy was being about as accepting of the situation as she could be until late in 2004 when Ray and Danny moved out of Texas and to Florida. Danny still had her dream of making it to the Olympics, and the Palm Beach County equestrian scene appears to be second to none for that goal. Figuring living in the heart of this would help her out, Danny and Ray bought a million-dollar property in Palm Beach surrounded by other horse ranches and other properties. In addition to having access to stables very close to the house, the way these properties were set up was to allow for 22 miles of uninterrupted horse trails without having to cross a single road. 
so Danny could train in her sport and Ray could work as a trainer and farrier like he had in San Antonio. Of course, he'd have to build up a new clientele and a new reputation in a new place, but he was up for it. In the house, Ray decked out a workout room so Danny could exercise before going out and training on the horses. And Danny was dedicated. She got up at 5 a.m., worked out, and then went out to the horses for the rest of the day. Without a day job in her way, she really could train from sunup to sundown. This move to Florida for Danny's sake was big for Ray, who had grown up in Texas and had all of his family there. And he noticed that after his move, people from back home really didn't call him very much, even though he would call them. He even asked his daughter Tracy about why she wasn't calling him more. But Tracy had been trying to call him, as had others, but all they heard was that the caller was unavailable. And that's because Danny, who shared a single cell phone with Ray, had gone in and blocked their numbers. Tracy soon learned that the cards and letters and pictures of the grandkids that she tried to send Ray would rarely reach him. She told 48 Hours that one time she got desperate enough that she sent her Christmas card with the picture of her kids, who were Ray's grandkids, by certified mail so he would have to sign for it. She would know for sure if he got it or not. And it was returned to her, denied. Ray seemed oblivious to these underhanded things his new wife was doing, and Tracy believed Danny was attempting to put this distance between Ray and his daughter and grandchildren to keep him from spending any money on them. That is what the family in Texas was seeing. Those in Florida saw these two as a happy couple who enjoyed doing things together. They joined the Cowboy Action Shooting Club and made a lot of friends. The shooting club was target shooting competitions combined with some old-timey cowboy cosplay. It honestly sounds like fun. And they all took names that sounded like Wild West characters. So Danny became Danny Oakley and Ray became Doc Green. Ray was there for the fun of it. But Danny was really into the competitive side, becoming one of the best shots in the group. But her real dream remained competing in the Olympics in dressage. It wasn't panning out just yet, and the 2008 Summer Olympics team went to Beijing without her. But dressage isn't a sport that you necessarily age out of, so Danny's dream wasn't over. One woman who did make the 2008 team was nearly 20 years older than Danny, so she had time to try again and again and again. But there was something else that happened in 2008, other than the Olympics, that impacted Danny's chances considerably, and that was the global financial crisis. When things get tight and people cut back, things that they cut out are things like horse buying. So without new horses, they need less training. The market that Danny and Ray needed for their income collapsed. It didn't take long for Ray and Danny to run through what was left of Ray's money from the settlement. Horses are incredibly expensive when it comes to upkeep. And of course, there was a mortgage on the property. They needed another source of income. So Ray got a job with their homeowners association as a landscaper for the community spaces. 
The job paid $55,000 a year, and the hope was that it would be enough to see them through until the economy recovered. Additionally, Ray, who was never afraid of hard work, would do odd jobs for neighbors for that additional income. But after a couple of years, they were just getting further and further behind. They had two mortgages on the property, and that property was no longer worth what they owed on it. And Ray was the only income earner as Danny was still focused on training full-time. After Danny didn't make it to the 2012 Olympic team, they sold their property at a loss. And it was about this time that Danny got some devastating news. Both of her parents had been diagnosed with cancer, and she learned they were both terminally ill. She decided to leave Florida and go to Indiana to be with them in their final months. With Ray's job being their only income, he stayed in Florida to finish out the landscaping contract, and in the meantime, he was staying with a friend. When it was time to pack up their Florida home, they had a few friends come out to the house and help load the moving truck. At one point, Ray couldn't find a box, and he asked Danny if she knew where it was. According to their friend Dave, Danny just snapped at him. She started yelling at Ray and putting him down in front of everyone. It seemed so unusual from what they usually saw between the couple that you have to wonder, was this lashing out a moment of stress? Or was this a peek into what happened behind closed doors? Maybe it was a sign that the two could really use the forced separation while Danny went to Indiana. With Danny gone, they could obviously no longer share a cell phone, so Ray got his own. And suddenly, all those calls that never came through, they were connecting, and Ray and his family, particularly his daughter Tracy, were back in regular contact. When Ray's next birthday rolled around, a friend gave Ray a truly generous and kind gift, a plane ticket to Texas to visit his family which included his daughter and grandchildren who he hadn't seen in years. This was something that Ray could not afford on his own. Even though he and Danny were living with other people and their expenses were low at that point, his paychecks were sent right to a bank account managed by Danny. The money Ray had to live off of while she was in Indiana was whatever he made from those odd jobs he did for neighbors. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep our, it simple. Uh, I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav bros. Good job. Being back in close contact with his family was something Ray knew Danny probably wouldn't have been thrilled with. But he wasn't the only one keeping a relationship quiet from his spouse. Ray's relationship was with his daughter, one that his new wife never should have interfered with to begin with. 
but Danny's relationship was with another man. After moving to Indiana, Danny messaged a man named George in November 2012. The two had known each other through the shooting club in Florida, and it doesn't seem like they had any type of inappropriate relationship while they lived in the same state. But after Danny reestablished contact from Indiana, the two would spend hours on the phone and, according to court records, exchanged hundreds of emails. The tone of their conversations was definitely flirty and sexually suggestive. Danny would sometimes complain to George about Ray and talk about wanting to move back to Florida where George was. But instead of returning to Florida when her parents died in 2013, Ray moved up to Indiana. His work contract had ended, and he didn't have any money to buy a place in Florida. However, Danny had inherited land from her parents, so it made more sense to move to where they had a place to live. And it was not just a roof over their head, but actual acreage. Danny's parents owned 300 acres in Dillsboro, Indiana, and after their deaths, it was divided equally between their three children. Though there was a house on the property, it did need some significant repairs, so Danny and Ray instead lived on a trailer on their 100 acres. Their hope was to turn things around and make this another working horse farm. In the meantime, to support them, Ray got his CDL and worked as a truck driver, and Danny tried to get their new working farm off the ground. After Ray took the truck driving job, one of the benefits he got from his company was special life insurance rates. An agent, who was also named Raymond, reached out to Ray to go over the various options he had. Raymond, the agent, offered to run a quote for Danny as well, which is a pretty standard insurance upsell. You know, while I have you on the phone, let's talk about what else I can offer you. It's like me upselling my Patreon, patreon.com slash crimelines. So Ray said, sure, send over the quotes. Ray then mentioned wanting a quote on a separate policy for Tracy so that his grandchildren would have some additional security should something happen. But he asked the agent not to send any paperwork with Tracy's name on it to the house. He knew Danny would not be happy that he was considering spending any money on his daughter. Raymond, the agent, said he would not send it to the house, but then he accidentally did. Danny got the mail as she usually did and intercepted the paperwork from the insurance company. She saw Tracy's name on the paperwork and called the agent to ask if Ray was trying to buy a policy for his daughter. Raymond, the agent, knew from what Ray told him that he didn't want Danny to know. So he lied and answered, not to my knowledge. And then he tried to pass off the name on the paperwork as a clerical error. So the question Danny had for the agent when she called was about the policy for Tracy. She did not ask about any potential policy on her own life. Yet when she talked to George about it later, she claimed she was suspicious that Ray wanted to take out a policy on her life. Ray had gotten quotes on a variety of amounts, with the lowest being $100,000 and the highest being $500,000 which Danny characterized as large policies. She told George she didn't want Ray to take any life insurance policy out on her, and she was worried about why Ray was looking into it. 
Again, she didn't mention any of that to the insurance agent, instead being concerned about Tracy. But this wasn't the only financial planning Ray was doing at this point. He had also looked into his Social Security benefits as he was over 62, which is the minimum age to start receiving them. Getting Social Security before the age of 65 and before you are fully retired from working is a decision that requires crunching numbers, and that's what it seems Ray was doing. In this process, he learned that he was actually eligible for benefits stemming from the loss of his first wife if he applied before he turned 65 and if he hadn't remarried before the age of 60, which, unfortunately for this situation, he had. But he was advised that if he was no longer married to Danny, he would qualify as Maggie's widower for those benefits. So 10 years into their marriage, in early 2014, Danny and Ray divorced, and Ray applied for benefits in the hope that it would help their financial situation. Ray saw the divorce as a financial decision and a matter of paperwork. They remained living together through it all. But Danny told her friend, George, down in Florida that it was a step in her plan to actually leave Ray. She wanted to get back to Florida and back to the equestrian scene there. So we have Danny telling George that she was concerned about the life insurance policy and what it meant and that she was going to leave Ray. However, there was no indication that she made any plans towards making that a reality in the next four months following the divorce, leading up to Memorial Day weekend in late May 2014. It was the day after Memorial Day, Tuesday, May 27th, that Danny made a couple of bizarre phone calls. One was to raise work to let them know that he wouldn't be in because he had died in an accident over the weekend. She also called Ray's poor 84-year-old mother, Betty, and told her that Ray had died after having been mauled by their German shepherd, Jazzy, the previous day. Jazzy had jumped on Ray and gone for his throat. Danny then called Ray's work back and told them the same story about the dog attack. Ray's mother, Betty, was obviously upset and startled after that phone call. Danny didn't offer much information, so Betty called the sheriff in their county and asked for a welfare check. It didn't make sense for Danny to call with that story if it didn't happen, but it also seemed just too bizarre to have happened. Two deputies went out to the property to check on Ray. They found Danny home, and when they asked about Ray, Danny said he was just fine and he was out on the road for work. However, they saw his truck parked on the property. So they left, but they knew something was not right. So they called in the state police, who then ran a check on Ray's cell phone. It pinged on his own property. Investigators returned to the property a few hours after they had first been there and asked if they could look around outside. Danny said sure. In their search, they didn't see any sign of Jazzy, the dog Danny claimed killed Ray, but they did find a large metal toolbox with a padlock on it and flies buzzing around it. They asked Danny if they could open it, and she said that she couldn't give them permission to do so. The box was Ray's, and she didn't know what was in it, so it would be up to him if he wanted to let them open it. So she was basically telling the police they could search anywhere except the big metal box that smelled bad and was attracting flies. 
Not sure if Danny thought they'd just shrug and move on or what, but what they did do was get a search warrant to open that box. When it was opened, they found Ray Green's nude body inside. He had been shot to death. And that's when they got a search warrant for the trailer. Inside the home on the search, they noticed that the place smelled like bleach, and they found blood spatter in the bedroom, indicating that was the location of the shooting. Additionally, there was a piece of the bedroom carpet that was cut out in a perfect match for a bloody piece found in the tool chest with Ray's body. This was a very crude attempt at a cover-up. When the police sat down to talk to Danny at the property and get the truth late on May 28th, she confessed, but claimed self-defense. Danny said that after the move to Florida years before and with the financial stress, Ray became physically abusive. It escalated to sexual abuse as well. Danny claimed that in the days leading up to his killing, Ray was walking around naked and frequently tried to force her into sexual acts. At least twice, he put his arm against her neck, once from behind and once while on top of her, and used enough force that she couldn't breathe. She believed it was in retaliation for turning him down for sex. Danny was scared enough that she stopped sleeping in their bedroom and was sleeping on the couch instead. At 6 a.m. on Monday, May 26th, Danny woke up and had to use the bathroom. To get to the bathroom, she had to walk through the bedroom where Ray was sleeping. She said she tiptoed as to not wake him, and she was heading back through the room to get to the couch when Ray woke up and got out of bed. He threatened her, saying, I'm going to kill you. You need to die. Danny tried to turn and get away from him, and in doing this, she knocked him off balance, enough that he fell onto the bed. But then he got up and he lunged for her. Between the bed and the bathroom was a nightstand, and on that nightstand was a loaded 38. Danny grabbed the gun and shot Ray five times. She said he was still alive and not just alive, but moving, so she went into another room and reloaded. She then went back into the bedroom and claimed Ray at this point was sitting upright on the bed. Though she could see some blood on his left side, he was able to whisper that she needed to die, and he lunged at her again. She fired, emptying the gun into his head, and he fell to the floor dead. It was 12 years to the day since Ray's first wife, Maggie Green, had died in that bridge collapse, and Danny said she believed that was why he woke up so angry that morning. Danny said she then began cleaning up. She didn't tell the police everything she did to cover this up, but we know from what she did say and from the evidence that she dragged Ray's body out to the toolbox. She then pulled the bloody blankets and sheets from the bed and cut out the carpet where Ray's blood was. She bagged up the empty cartridges and put the gun into a bag. She bleached what she could and then threw everything into trash bags that she then put into the box with the body. She padlocked it and then used a tractor to drag it away from the trailer. After telling the story, Danny was not immediately arrested. She was claiming self-defense, and the autopsy was still pending. 
So they returned later the next day to interview Danny again and request that she do a filmed reenactment of exactly what happened. And she consented to this. So as Danny narrated her story this time, she acted it out. She gave more details of the exact movements of the fight, who grabbed for the gun first, and insisted that Ray was shot in the torso first. She said she didn't actually remember pulling the trigger or even hearing the shots, but she knew she did. She then reloaded in another room and came back. When Ray leaned forward like he was getting up, she fired again and this time into his head. The story she told during this reenactment was more or less consistent with the first story she told. So the police walked away having two things to determine. First, did the evidence support that things happened the way Danny said they did? And two, if they did, did the evidence also support self-defense? As for part one, did things happen the way Danny said, the police determined that they didn't, and they couldn't have. On autopsy, it was determined that Ray had been shot 10 times. Two bullets went into his back, three into the left side of his torso, four into the back of his head, and one into his left temple. The five shots to the torso would not have been survivable, though someone with those wounds may have lived for a few minutes. The shots to the head were more likely to be instantly fatal. Because the order of the shots could not be determined on autopsy, they couldn't disprove the part of Danny's story that said he was shot in the torso first. However, even if Ray was still alive and still able to talk after the five shots to the torso, it seemed to be a stretch to say that he was still upright, sitting on a bed, and then lunging for Danny after she had left the room, reloaded, and returned. And the shots to his head were to the back and the left temple. Unless he lunged at Danny with his head turned, how did this make sense? The other evidence the police believe disproved Danny's story was blood spatter found on the lower wall and the leg of the TV stand in the bedroom. One investigator said it was consistent with expirated blood, meaning there was an injury and the blood was expelled as the person coughed or gasped for air. As the blood is mixed with saliva, little bubbles form that then pop and leave noticeable rings. This told them that Ray was on the ground breathing at some point. They believed that Ray was on the ground after being shot in the torso, and then Danny left, reloaded, and fired into his head as he lay there helpless. Now, just because it didn't happen exactly how Danny said it did, it could still have been self-defense, and the trauma of the situation messed with her memory. But they didn't believe the self-defense story either. For one thing, if it was truly justifiable, why didn't she call 911? Why did she clean it up? Why did she call with all those stories about the dog killing him, only to then tell the police that he was out on the road? Danny would say it was the trauma of what happened that explained all of these things, because let's face it, these are ridiculous stories. Calling your mother-in-law to say a dog killed your husband with no plan to produce a body for burial or have a service or report the death is asking to get caught. And cutting out hunks of carpet to hide blood evidence doesn't hide anything. It kind of highlights it. To Danny, this was showing that she was acting out of trauma and not as a cold-blooded killer trying to get away with it. 
But the police were not just relying on Danny's post-shooting behavior to determine if this was self-defense or not. As a standard part of the investigation, they looked at digital evidence, and Danny's internet history didn't look good for her. On two days in March 2014, two months before the murder, Danny made a few internet searches. One search was, quote, what happens when you get shot in the head? Then more specifically, quote, headshot from 38 at close range, which we know is consistent with the firearm used in the murder of Ray Green. But if that's not specific enough, we have, if you shoot someone with a 38 caliber handgun in the head, is it lights out or possibly survive? In addition to those searches, Danny read articles about Gabby Giffords. For those who don't know or don't remember, Gabby Giffords was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Arizona. In January 2011, she was hosting a meetup to speak with constituents and hear them out. A man ran up to the gathering and opened fire. Nineteen people were shot, with six being killed. Gabby Giffords was shot in the head. Though severely injured and permanently affected by the shooting, she did survive. So that happened in January 2011. So why, three years later, was Danny reading articles not just about Gabby Giffords in general, but one specifically about how she survived her injuries? Then in late April, so around three or four weeks before Ray's murder, Danny searched the internet for information on how to change the direct deposit of Social Security benefits to a new bank account. Danny wasn't collecting Social Security benefits, but Ray was. This evidence led directly to the arrest of Danny Green on June 3, 2014. She was charged with murder. Nearly three months later, her defense team filed a notice of an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is saying, yes, I did it but I was justified. In this, Danny intended to argue both self-defense and battered woman syndrome, which is often called battered person syndrome today as this is not exclusive to women. Battered person syndrome is not in the DSM as a separate condition, but generally can be seen as a subset of post-traumatic stress disorder. The person has been abused by an intimate partner for so long that they are displaying symptoms of a mental disorder. Though it seems we only hear about this in legal cases, you can have battered person syndrome and not commit a crime, kill your partner, or injure your partner. So it's worth looking into treatment for PTSD if you have been in an abusive relationship or you're currently in one and you're seeing dysfunction in your daily life because of it. You don't have to suffer just because you haven't been pushed to commit a criminal act because of it. You deserve treatment, and I will leave a link in the show notes to the Mayo Clinic, giving a little bit more insight into what treatment options are out there in case you do need them. When we are applying battered person syndrome to a legal case, we do have advocates asking us to use the term criminalized survivor for that person rather than calling them a battered spouse or a battered woman or a battered person. In this case specifically, Danny was arguing that Ray's abuse, plus the life insurance policy, put her on guard. She was worried that Ray was planning on killing her. So when he got out of bed and threatened her, she shot him in self-defense. This combined argument is a good one because self-defense requires that the defendant acted in a way a reasonable person would. 
So for a straight self-defense argument to land, a reasonable person would have to think that killing Ray was the only way to avoid injury or death. And Danny's statement to the police did not support that. At least not after she shot him the first five times, went into another room to reload, and came back to finish him off. If she could have gotten away to reload, she could have gotten in her car and driven off. But by combining the battered person syndrome with self-defense, you remove the expectation that Danny be reasonable. Battered person syndrome is along the lines of a mental illness or a defect defense, so she would only have to be reasonable in that context for this defense to work. Due to the filing of a notice for an affirmative defense, the court required a psychological evaluation to support the battered person syndrome portion. Danny chose Dr. Carla Fisher, who was a domestic violence consultant. She evaluated Danny over two days and found that she had been the victim of intimate partner violence. She diagnosed Danny with PTSD and concluded that she had not intended to kill Ray and she did not premeditate it. Dr. Fisher would not end up testifying at trial, though. The state objected to her testimony for a few reasons, but a really interesting one to me was that they challenged her qualifications. Challenging an expert can be an uphill battle, but Dr. Fisher was not a clinical or forensic psychologist. She was in research. So while she could be an expert about the general issues at play, being an expert related directly to Danny and diagnosing her seemed outside her scope. By Indiana law, only licensed psychologists can make a diagnosis of PTSD. But the state didn't just rely on her experience or lack thereof, but also the manner in which Dr. Fisher got to her diagnosis. It did not follow proper protocol. One notable thing she did not do was an evaluation for malingering. And we talked about the role of those tests in the Rachel Timmerman episode, if you want to go hear more details about it. Basically, it's giving someone something that seems like an evaluation. It seems very real, but it has a little clinical value for what they're looking into. It's just there to determine if someone might be faking or exaggerating their symptoms. I've seen experts be challenged in most of the cases we cover. I don't always go into the details of it because in the end, the judge will let them testify, so it doesn't matter. So I thought I'd bring up this situation specifically because it's one of those exceptions where we are seeing an expert be excluded for not meeting the criteria. But Dr. Fisher's testimony was not the only support the defense had for Danny's abuse claims. Her friend in Florida, George, said that she told him about an argument once where Ray grabbed her and threw her into a wall. And their mail carrier from Florida said she also saw the signs. Danny would have black eyes or other injuries that she would blame on the horses, but not convincingly. What they didn't have was anyone who directly saw Ray act in an abusive or threatening manner towards Danny. At trial, the state told the jury that this was not self-defense, but rather a chance for Danny to leave Ray and go back to Florida to start a new life with George. They said the evidence showed that Ray was lying down, possibly even asleep, when he was first shot. They presented bedding that showed that the bullets had gone through the comforter and the sheet before hitting Ray. The only way that could have happened, if Ray was standing up, would have been if the sheet and blanket were wrapped around him. And if he was wrapped in a blanket, how did he attack Danny? I mean, he didn't tie it around him like a toga. 
so he somehow attacked her while also holding bedding around himself. To further support this, they had the testimony of the coroner who did the autopsy. They had her view the video recording they had of Danny's reenactment of the crime. She testified that Danny's description was not consistent with all of the entrance wounds and the injuries found on Ray's body. It just simply could not have happened the way Danny claimed. Danny's defense was that Ray did attack her regardless of how exactly things happened and in what order. She had started packing his things the night before and told him he had to move out. He was angry and it was no coincidence that he died on the anniversary of Maggie's death. It was in part his grief that made his anger seem so intense towards Danny that morning. Two supporter claims that she told Ray to leave. The defense did have text messages Danny sent to her friend Mary that weekend that said as much. She sounded afraid enough that Mary told her she should call the police, but she opted not to. Now, that text conversation can cut both ways, proving that Danny was scared for her life or that she was setting up a story in advance. At trial, Danny opted not to testify. The jury deliberated for several hours before finding 43-year-old Danny Green guilty in September of 2015. She was facing 55 to 65 years in prison. At the sentencing hearing, Ray's family talked about how Danny had cut them off from contact and how she was the controlling and abusive one, not Ray. His mother talked about not being able to get the image of him in a metal box out of her head. And Tracy, his daughter, said that she had trouble sleeping, having lost both of her parents to tragedy. The prosecutor said that Danny was dangerous as she was a user. She looked at any scenario and only cared about what was in it for her. When Ray's money ran out and he had to go drive a truck to eke out a living, Danny was ready to move on to the next opportunity. The only thing Danny wasn't willing to do was get a job herself, so she couldn't just leave Ray. She had to kill him so she could walk away with everything. The defense presented their own witnesses who saw the good in Danny, including one of her jailers who said she was respectful and attended Bible study weekly while also teaching other inmates to read. Now, the prosecution said this was just more manipulation on Danny's part. She obeyed the rules at the jail because it benefited her to do so. The judge set a date to deliver his sentence, but before he could, the defense came forward with a concern. A juror had complained about discord among the jury panel during deliberations, and the defense wanted time to investigate it to see if it had anything to do with the verdict. If anyone was pressured to return a guilty verdict, they needed to look into it. The prosecutor argued that they already looked into the complaints and they weren't about the verdict, but rather issues like when they got to take breaks and over what meals they were getting and the jury room being too cramped. They argued the standard could not be that it was uncomfortable in the jury room because it's always uncomfortable when you're deliberating someone's future. They would have to throw out every verdict. The judge told the defense that they could appeal, but he was going ahead with the sentence. He gave Danny a sentence of 60 years. In Indiana, you must serve 75% of your sentence behind bars, so Danny Green's projected release date is in May of 2043, when she will be 71 years old. And that is barring a successful appeal. But so far, her appeals have not been successful. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. 
Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 